So this morning we're going to be talking about unity. If you're looking for the um, title of the message, uh, The Divine Perspective, Unity. Um, because I think the body of Christ at large lacks a revelation on unity. And if we really had a firm grasp upon the unity that's available to us as in unison and oneness with our Father, with our Creator, as well as our fellow believers, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that uh, this Christian walk would be a lot easier. It's one of the keys of transformation to Christ-likeness. If we want to live a life that has less sin, or if you just want to feel less slime by the world, unity is key to that walk. And it's, in, it's been in God the Father's heart, Jesus the Son's heart, and the Holy Spirit's heart since the beginning. In Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They were all in. All the chips were pushed in the table. They had no reservations that they had the winning hand. It was an all-out blitz. Papa was looking at Jesus and saying, look, I want to I wanna bring you brothers and sisters. I want to give you a bride. And Jesus was looking back at Papa and saying, look, at, we're gonna have be- you're going to have beautiful children, and I'm going to show them how to love and how to uh, serve you and, and how to honor you, and, it, and it's going to minister to your heart. And Holy Spirit chimes in, and he's saying, oh, I get a, this beautiful temple to, to inhabit, and it's going to bless you, Lord, and it's going it's to bless you, Jesus. And they were all in, and they were all in this unity together. It was in their heart from the beginning. And then in verse 31, when they created man, they said, Behold, it was very good. See, it wasn't the beautiful trees or the, the snow-capped mountains or uh, powerful waterfalls or, or white sandy beaches that made things good. It was man. It was the apple of God's eye. It was the crescendo of creation where man was created. And God said, behold, it was very good. That was you and me. We were created to be in unity with our, with our creator. Sadly, the fall came, but in rushed the 66th book love letter. If I could sum it up in, in three brief sentences, God created man to be in unison with him. We fell, and then he went on this long journey that cost him literally everything, his own life, in order to restore us back to him. And it culminates in, behold, I am making all things new. So can you picture it? I'm going to try to paint a mental picture this morning of, of who our God is. And I'm going to fall wolf, woefully short because words obviously can't describe him. But let's, let's just behold eternity for a minute. If you're willing, just close your eyes for a second. It's not boring. It's majestic. It's breathtaking. We're beholding the beauty of the Lord. And then he turns just ever so slightly, and he shows us a new portion of his goodness. And we're able to rest in that for a minute. Jesus said in John 17 that to know him is eternal life. It's going to take an eternity to know him. You can open up your eyes again, because we don't have an eternity this morning, but we'll... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> we get a glimpse into the goodness of God in Exodus 33 where, where Moses asks the Lord to show him his glory and, and the Lord responds and says I will make all my goodness pass before you and that word for goodness is the Hebrew word tob and it can mean goodness can mean beauty can mean delightfulness or correctness can you imagine someone who's always good, never bad, 
My toddlers are coming to mind right now. I'm always trying to correct them and discipline them. How childish I've been in my life as a child and into being a young adult. I know I've been bad, but God and our Father, He's always been good. He's never had a bad moment. Always working for the benefit and the good of others. Giving away Himself. Sacrificing. Beautiful. Always beautiful. Doesn't need a makeup. No masks. Pure, unadulterated beauty. He's whitewashed. He's bleached clean. His beauty cannot be added to or subtracted from. Delightful. Always a pleasure to be around. His joy fills the room. It's breathtaking. It's intoxicating. And he doesn't breathe a sigh of relief when the last guest leaves. Or is that just me? <laughs> just kidding. No, he's, he's, he, he wants to draw us in and, and bring us closer. Don't, don't leave. You're not a guest. You're a child. You're a son. You're a daughter. Correctness. Always correct. Never wrong. Not in the I told you so arrogant kind of way, but in a humble, humble, gentle kind of way. But it doesn't leave any room for an alternative either. His way is exclusive. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. The way is exclusive, folks. It's sometimes a hard pill to swallow, especially for our culture. There's multiple truths out there. It's a lie. There's one truth. His name is Jesus. You can hardly read a, a business organization's vision statement or um, an, an organization's value set without seeing or a class syllabus and hearing the word inclusivity, which, hey, I am all for diversity. The Lord created the races. He created the genders, male and female. He created them. The Lord loves diversity. His invitation is all-inclusive, but the way is exclusive, and we can't water down the gospel beyond that. For what does the darkness have in common with the light? The gospel is inherently confrontational. We need to get a backbone. The world is shouting out there and trying to steal our children, to say the least, and it's getting ugly. And where are the Christians willing to stand up and willing to say no? I have the truth. I know the truth. And it, it has a name. His name is Jesus. We live in a dark world. And we should be getting busy preaching a message of repentance and getting right, getting unified with our Creator. And preaching isn't just reserved for Sunday morning either. I look at my Bible and I see uh, Noah or Jonah to Nineveh, Peter and Acts. They all began their ministries with repent. They weren't talking in-house. They were talking out there. And they weren't in an assembly. They had to go. And they were preaching a message of repentance. So stay with me as I continue to paint this picture of the vastness of our Lord. Astronomers just recently came out with a report that the universe is expanding at even greater speed than they had previously uh, anticipated. And it's trillions of miles wide hundreds of trillions of miles wide. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have atoms. You have electrons, neutrons, protons. Stay with me. Chemistry dropouts, okay? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it all together, okay? Paul raised his hand. It's not true. He copied off of me. He didn't... <laughs> yeah, we passed. <laughs> but... 
on a proportionate scale, the distance between the smallest parts of this of, of creation of atoms are further apart than the planets in our solar system. So to put that in perspective, if you took off walking from this very minute and walked four miles an hour every hour of every day for the next 70 years, you wouldn't even be 1% of the way to Neptune, which is 2.7 billion miles away. That's the vastness of our God. And it's the same creator who wants to have unified relationship with us. In Exodus 3, going back to Moses, when Moses asked the Lord, whom shall I say sent me? And the Lord's reply was, I am, or I am the being sent you. As Weiss puts it, I am the being to whom alone belongs existence sent you. And it's this being, it is this God who wants to be in unified relationship with us. So if you'll turn with me to Ephesians 4. We're going to talk about how do we arrive at unity. Ephesians 4, chapter 1 through 7, and we'll skip down a little bit after that. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of our calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gifts. So how do we arrive at unity? Back it up to verses 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit. So the first point would be being diligent. It's intentional. It's not accidental. To be diligent means to be careful and persistent in a work or effort. When I think of someone who is diligent, I think of someone performing a task routinely and consistently and developing healthy practices and ways to accomplish the work at hand. This morning, the work at hand is unity. Showing tolerance for one another in love, not quarrelsome. It's amazing to me in Christian circles how the smallest offense leads to major rifts or how one comment stings and sits with someone and bursts a root of bitterness. Sometimes those comments are legitimate and should, should bear pain. Sometimes those come in the form of sarcasm. I didn't think I was really going to include sarcasm in a, in a message, um, but the Lord wouldn't let me go through it as I was preparing the, really, the Holy Spirit was really impressing upon me, so hopefully this is for someone. I want to encourage anyone listening that if you are lonely and you have a very sarcastic humor, it's time to repent. Try abstaining from sarcastic comments for a week or a month and see what new relationships and current relationships might be restored around you. Because here's the deal about sarcasm. It, it puts up the most subtle of defenses of, of Pricklies of porcupine pricklies, if you will. Prickles? I don't know what they're called. <clears throat> they hurt. <clears throat> Quills, thank you. <clears throat> but sarcasm is really just a form of, of self-protection. And it's hard to detect, but people definitely sense the outer shell that we're trying to put up. And it usually has a, an edge of truth to it, 
So it even further communicates that um, if you keep asking, I'll really let you know what I think. And so therefore, it lends itself to um, the sarcastic person being even more lonely because no one wants to be vulnerable with them. And it's just a vicious cycle that repeats um, where they feel even more alone. And then that turns into more anger, and the anger more manifests into, into more sarcasm. So I just I wanted to share that this morning. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let me get away. Uh, some of the loneliest people that I know are the most sarcastic people that I know. All right, back to Ephesians. Um, how do we arrive at unity? Humility. Can't you remember a time when you made a bunch of assumptions about a situation or a person without knowing the facts and caused a bunch of division along the way? Gentleness. Proverbs tells us that a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Sadly, many times our, our anger, our wrath causes division. Don't get me wrong, sometimes there's anger is the only righteous response that we should have to a given situation, but more often than not, our anger is mischanneled and misguided and causes division. Patience, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. We recited it this morning. We're encouraged not to grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So if we sow patience, we will reap unity. If we look at verses 4 through 6, there's a lot of oneness going on. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. There's a lot of oneness there, and yet there's a lot of division in the body. God in his wisdom wants us to be part of someone and something bigger than ourselves. Because that's where deep, profound contentment, satisfaction, and joy reside. It's the trinity we, we see that dynamic played out inside the Trinity. And it's the heartbeat of the gospel where Jesus comes and saves us and then he says, I want them too. I'll teach you the low road. I'll teach you love. I'll teach you humility. I'll teach you honor. I'll teach you selflessness. I'll teach you patience. And Jesus did this and he's the exact representation of the Father. But he was limited in, in his humanity. And so he sends the helper along. He sends the Holy Spirit along who's knocking on the door of our heart saying, come and be my temple. Be Jesus' body. Be his bride. Be his brothers and sisters. Be Papa's children. Be his heirs. Be his friend. So that gets me to the next point. Julie, if you can put, put up the slide. You don't have to write all these down. We're going to break them down one by one. But, so transitioning in this portion of the message, if you wanted to put, what does God get when he's in unison with man? And there's eight points. I tried really hard to get it to seven. I know Paul's really big on seven-point messages. I even had one and one A, and it was just, it was too long. I had to break it up. Yeah, so, sorry, Paulie. So the first thing that God gets, Jesus gets a body. If we continue reading on in, in Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16, 
But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of, of itself in love. You could even add a mature body. There's a lot of immaturity in the body, and the Lord wants to press that out of us. We sing in the crushing, in the pressing, you are making new wine. The Lord wants to bring us into perfection. He wants to bring us into unity with himself, and he doesn't just want something that is impure or has some spots in it. He wants the real deal. He wants the top shelf wine. He doesn't want the chardonnay. I have no parallel for wine. Paul was talking about it last week or a couple weeks ago. and He wants the good stuff. He wants, to, he wants to press us out so that what we have to offer him actually costs us something. Ephesians 1, and 23, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Corinthians 12, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. So whether we're talking individually or corporately, Jesus wants to be the head of his body. The head is connected. It's not just floating above the shoulders, right? But that's sometimes how we treat Jesus, where we just grow our own head and tell him, take the back seat. We're going to take the steering wheel. And that hasn't worked out very well in my life. And none of this co-pilot stuff with Jesus either. It's either he gets the wheel or he doesn't. No one's co-pilot with the Lord. From my own testimony bears witness of when I've tried taking the steering wheel. It just leads to more pain and more misery. But when I've handed things over to God, how blessed I have been. His way is better than our way, and his thoughts are better than our thoughts. We might get battered around, we might get bruised, we might go down the road less traveled, but it's worth it because the Lord's going to save us from the car crash at the end of the road that we are trying to go on. John 16:33. In this life you will have troubles, but behold, Jesus has overcome the world. Sounds like someone who we should let have reins in our life and be in the, in the driver's seat and completely unified with so that we can learn the lessons appropriately and overcome life's, life's troubles. Number two, the Holy Spirit gets a temple or a house. 1 Corinthians 3, For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But one must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, straw, hay, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a, a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God, that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. 
And we're always talking about fire around here, and it's not just because we're charismatic, but the Lord, I want God to send his fire so that I know whether what I'm building is of kingdom quality or not. I don't want to meet him at the end of, of my days or when he comes back to find out that none of that that you built is coming with you. I don't want to bring anything into his temple that isn't worthy of him, which means I have to be careful of what's going into this body, whether it be physically or how I'm taking care of my family, how am I building relationships, how am I spending my time, what am I watching, what am I listening to. 2 Corinthians 6.16, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Think about for a moment just how special a place home is to you. And hopefully you're already living in your dream home, but if you're not, just dream about it for a second, okay? It's special. If there was an intruder, you would fend it off. You want to decorate it. You want... You, you protect the walls from scuffs. You, you want things in order so that when guests come over, they would feel at home too. And God looked at you and me and said, yep, that right there. That's what I want to build my house. That's what I want to come and live in. And fixer-uppers are his specialty. C.S. Lewis put it this way. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, he stops the leaks in the roof and gets the plumbing working properly. You knew these things needed done, but then he starts knocking the house in ways that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. Throwing in a new wing on here, putting an extra floor there, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made in a nice little cottage, but he is building a palace that he intends to come and live in. John 14.10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my, no, on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Jesus here is saying that he houses the Lord, that the Father is in him. And abiding is a choice. God could choose to live anywhere, and he chooses us. And not only does he choose us, the Bible says that he jealously yearns over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. God's jealous for his house. He is jealous for you and me to be in proper order, and he's willing to go to great lengths in order to make that so. His remodel budget is infinite. And no one's too far gone, too broken, for God to redeem, restore, and renew. Number three, brethren, or brothers and sisters. Hebrews 2, 11 and 12. going to be in a lot of scripture today. Hebrews 2, 11 and 12. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. So if you have the same Father, by definition, you are brothers and sisters. Surely there's probably some um, only childs out there. Lord bless you. I have two older sisters. If you're watching, I love you. <laughs> Maybe you don't have the greatest relationships with your siblings, but that doesn't have to be the case in the kingdom. It's not supposed to be the case in the kingdom. It's a big family, 
and it grieves Papa, Papa's hearts that there is so much division in the family amongst the siblings. And what are we vying for? What are we, what are we contending for? Is Jesus not the firstborn of all creation? Colossians 1.15. He gets the preeminence. He gets the glory. He gets the honor. And yet there's over 200 denominations of Christianity in the United States alone. This house that he is building is precisely that. It is one house. It's not fragmented, and the dining room table is in one room. The table's huge, but it's in one room. God hates division, and the spirit is grieved by it. Proverbs 6.16, Here are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. So much for the Bible doesn't say anything about abortion. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads division among brothers. Kind of seems like an odd, odd one in with the rest of those things. I can get on board with the first six things on that list, and then one who spreads division on, among brothers. The Lord hates that. It's an abomination to him. And then in Ephesians 4, Paul, writing in the con- context of being members of one another, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word that is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. That verse 31, sorry, verse 30, kind of standing by itself, it seems like. So we have to grab the context of what, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. What, what, what does that even mean? How am I grieving the Lord? Well, the verses before and after, those, when we use words that stir up anger, clamor, slander, malice, bitterness, the Lord's wanting division to be driven out from amongst his people. So I encourage you to go back later. Those two verses were Ephesians 4.29 and Proverbs 6.16-19. through 19, And dwell on those passage, passages. What God hates and what he is grieved by should move us. It should stir us. That our priorities, that our hearts, that our desires should be in alignment with his. Let's go back to Hebrews 2 and look at Jesus. Look at Big Brother. I will proclaim your name to my brothers. Jesus is making the Father's heart known to his younger brothers and sisters, and he did so even to his dying breath. For Jesus, it wasn't enough to just be a good brother or to call us brother, but he exampled it for us as well. The perfect son through his spirit perfecting the adopted sons and daughters, which is my next point. Children, number four. Here comes a Christmas verse. How'd this end up in here? Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. I put this verse in here because it shows the paternal heart of Jesus. Yes, he's the son, but see that Isaiah was prophesying about Jesus and calls him Eternal Father. And the thing about the, the longings, the desires that, that God puts within us is that it's a desire to reproduce, and he wants to reproduce himself in us and in our offspring. And so 
Jesus has a paternal heart as well as a son, that he has a fathering heart. John 15, 9, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus knows the, the paternal heart of God, and therefore he's able to teach us the paternal heart of Papa as well. And it's a simple love. Abide in it. Abide comes from the same word as abode, which means home. And yes, there is rest at home. There is peace at home. There is tranquility at home. There is joy at home. But there is still work to be done at home. There's still chores to do. We can't get all caught up in the head knowledge of the love of God without the actions that come along with it. There are chores, if you will. I had them growing up. My three- and four-year-old, Elijah and Chloe, will have them soon enough. Praise the Lord when I don't have to mow the lawn anymore. <laughs> I remember, it's like, it was like a rite of passage for me. It felt so good when I was able to do that. And, and right, it was, I was able to honor my dad when I first started mowing the lawn. I wanted to please him. And, and so he wanted to reward me for wanting to please him. And so how much more so does our Father in Heaven want to reward us for when we do things that are pleasing to him. 1 John 3.1 See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. Now, Paul preached the message on, on adoption and, and what it's like to be called God's children and, and loved by the Father. And so, you know, we can spend probably two or three more sermons breaking down what it's like the fullness of being a child of God and being unison, being in unison with him from that aspect. So here's my shameless plug for check us out on YouTube and Spotify and SoundCloud and all that Apple podcasts. Nick and Isabel do a good job of, of getting all our content on there. But suffice it to say what an honor it is to be called by God, his child, to be loved by him in the same way that he loved Jesus. The bond that, ex that exists between parent and child is so strong, right? And we see it all around us, especially in this flock. There's a lot of children. And it's beautiful. But it's just the natural representation. What about, what about our God and Father and how much he wants to be in unified relationship with us, his children? Number five, heirs. It's on the shirts. If we had just wrote one more verse after Romans 8.15, I see a couple out there. Here's another shameless plug. Get the adopted shirts. It goes to a good cause. <laughs> Romans 8.15 and 16. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. See, in finding these reference verses to go along with these points is actually difficult at times because they're really intermingled. So you can see how they play off of one another, that we see simile and metaphor after simile and metaphor of how the Lord wants to be in unison with his creation. And he's trying to paint for us this beautiful picture that there's so much to the dynamic. There's more than just being a child. There's being an heir. There's more than just being a brother and sister. It's being a friend. There's more to, and we'll get to all eight points, but 
I'm trying to stir in us and paint this picture for God wants to be in unison with us. And what a beautiful thing it is to be called an heir of his, to be called a child of his, to be called a friend of his, to be a citizen in his kingdom. He uses all these languages that carry such beautiful connotations with it. If we'd be willing to go down that route and explore it and dwell on the scriptures and really come before the Lord and say, really, really, you want to be my friend? You want me to be your child? Because if I'm a good friend, I'm a good brother. If I'm a good brother, I'm a good child and an heir also. It, it, it all intermingles. You know, we're, we're told to exult in our tribulation and to not lose heart in this momentary light affliction. It's because our inheritance is eternal. It's waiting for us, and the reward is great for those willing to suffer for his namesake. I don't think we always fully grasp the weight of eternity. You know, it's one with an infinite amount of zeros behind it. We are eternal beings, and there's only two places where we'll spend eternity, either in New Jerusalem with Jesus or in the lake of fire. This concept of being an heir in the natural, you know, we receive an inheritance when someone passes away, and they leave things for us in, in their will, but in the spirit, we get... We don't get the fullness of our inheritance now, but we get a beautiful glimpse of it. And it won't happen until the marriage of the bride with her bridegroom, which is my next point. Number six, Jesus gets a bride. Having a seat at the wedding table as a friend of the bridegroom is part of our rich inheritance. Again, it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic because our inheritance is, is death be at the wedding table, but we're also the bride too. Ephesians five twenty five through 32. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ has also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to also love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Obviously, from that passage, we see the church is the bride of Christ. In Revelation 19.7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, I remember my own wedding day circling that date on the calendar and, and it seemed like all time revolved around it. Every conversation I had with family and with friends, you know, that would come up and it was with great joy and great expectancy that I was waiting to, to marry Brittany and what a beautiful day it was, but how much more so should we be waiting for when the Lord Jesus himself comes back? He wants a love sickness inside of us that we are longing for his return, that we are longing for him to come back. It's not that we should just be praying and fasting for his return. The Lord is, is wanting the what's behind the, or the why's behind the what's. He, he's going after the motives of our hearts and, and, and really driving that love sickness. I want you to want me, says the Lord. The 
when is Jesus coming back? We just read it. When his bride is holy, consecrated, and on fire for him. When his bride is actively looking for him. Yes, the bride needs to look into the mirror on her wedding day from time to time, but probably every bride will tell you that the most important look that she has is the one when she steps down the aisle and sees her bridegroom at the other end of it. We need to have that kind of fascination, that kind of wonder for that moment for Jesus to really behold him. This bridal language is also found in the Old Testament, Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband. Hosea 2.16, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me husband and will no longer call me master. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. I love Jeremiah Johnson's observation on these passages. He says, only the language of betrothal expresses the intensity of, of affection that God has for us as his people. His heart and desire for us should captivate our hearts and wake us up out of apathy and complacency. This in part explains why God is so jealous for marriages because it is an expression of unity. And he's even more jealous for a pure marriage bed because it's the ultimate expression physical expression of the unity that exists between man and woman. So all you young couples out here, this is an, another one of those, doesn't fully correlate, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let me go. So to all the young couples, I want to encourage you, surround yourself with other healthy marriages. Seek wise counsel. Ask the older saints for their insights and wisdom. We all need not attend the school of hard knocks, especially as it relates to marriage. I know I've been uh, beautifully blessed in my six and a half years of marriage to Brittany by being around other believers, by seeking their wisdom and counsel, by asking older saints, hey, how did you get to 30, 40, 50 years? And the most beautiful part of, of any wedding, in my opinion, I, there's lots to love about weddings, but I love the anniversary dance where they call out, all right, everyone who's married, get out on the wedding floor, and, and then, hey, if you've been married one year, please leave five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and it just keeps going. And there's always the great-grandparents or grandparents, and they've been married 60 years, and you're like, how in the world did they do that? I want to be that couple one day. Seek those people out. Seriously. Number seven, what does God get when he is in unison with his creation, citizens. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. It's another verse I could have used for you know, the temple. Again, this beautiful corollary, this picture that the Lord is trying to paint for us through scriptures, that unison with him has multiple facets and multiple dynamics. So let's talk about citizens, citizenry for a second. Notice that we have already talked about being a temple, but where is that temple located? It's in God's kingdom. 
Now, he doesn't reign on earth yet. He is coming back. So this, this temple is a holy outpost for when the Lord descends from on high and comes and reclaims all of the earth for his glory. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity into conformity with the body of his glory. What do citizens have? They have rights. Right? They are protected. Just think of the preamble of the Constitution. Where are my history majors at? Anyone? Grant? I know it. Nick? Don't hide. Didn't think you'd use it in service, huh? Here it comes. <clears throat> we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, Paul's got it, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. These are all biblical principles. And if man can come together in unity to establish justice, to ensure peace, to defend others, to love and bless others, how much so does your Father in heaven want to do these things for his citizens, for his children, for his friends? Which is my last point, number eight. Would you turn to John 15, 12 through 14? John 15, 12 to 14. This will be the last scripture we visit before we land this plane. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends, if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. This I command you, that you love one another. The mark of a friend of God is love. Anytime Jesus repeats himself, we should pay extra attention, because he front-ended and book-ended this command with love one another. The mark of love is sacrifice. Jesus gave this command, and then he laid down his very life. Now, for the possibility of any, any of us to, do, to go to that extreme is remote, but Jesus was speaking to the heart posture, the willingness to, be, to lay down your life. So what does that look like for you? How do you lay down your life for, for a friend in the kingdom, for God? Am I willing to share the gospel to an unbeliever? Am I willing to address sin? Am I willing to take a meal even when it's inconvenient? Am I willing to intercede, wake up early, and pray on behalf of someone? Am I willing to fast for them? See, it's that kind of intentionality that's going to move roadblocks and help bring greater unity in the body of Christ. What's a friend? Someone you make memories with. Someone you go to when times are tough. Someone you seek counsel from. God is this person for us, and so much more. He wants a place at our dinner tables, and at our birthday parties, and at our family gatherings. We do well to invite him in on Sunday mornings and, and before bed when we, when we pray. But how would you feel if, if you were a friend who was only welcome over once every couple months? Or if you had a home that you could only sleep in one, once a night or once a week? 
a bride not all that excited for her wedding day, a child who's disobedient to their parent, an heir who didn't really care for what was left behind to them. Each of these scenarios should elicit a that's not right response. Yet we are guilty of treating the Lord like that when we're not coming into unity with him. So we should not be flippant about the great lengths that God went to and through to make all these things. I think we have all eight now. Body, temple, brothers and sisters, heirs, bride, children, citizens, friends. He sent his very own son, the one who enjoyed perfect unity with for all eternity past, present, and future. I look at that list and it's hard to believe. You know, God, if I had the ability to choose the perfect body or the perfect child, we've already dismissed the kids, or the perfect bride, husbands be careful. I'm kidding. If I had the ability to choose the perfect fill-in-the-blank, would I choose myself? And the Lord said, yes, I chose you. I chose you for myself. The reconciliation of man costs God everything. To disregard and be indifferent towards unity would be to mock the cross. Every night when I pray with Elijah and Chloe before bread, we, before bread... <laughs> Before bed, we thank him before bread too. <clears throat> but we also thank him before bed, and, and we always start off with thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you, Lord. The Bible says while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And before, before Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he modeled how to be a perfect son, perfect brother, perfect child perfect citizen, perfect temple, a perfect friend of God. We went from enemies of God to his children. Our eternal destination was changed in a heartbeat. And if we all firmly grasped that reality and spent some time in awe and wonder of that, of, of the unity that Jesus brought us into, I think we would get past our differences a lot quicker and there wouldn't be as much division among the siblings. The benefits of unity with God are, are eternal, as is our inheritance. Unity was on Jesus' heart in John 17, right before his betrayal. Out of all the exhortations he could have given at the Last Supper table, the very last of it was on unity. So if you'll stand with me, if you're able, I just want to read from John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer. John 17, 20 to 23. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I, I repent for any disunity that I have sown. 
I repent of being complacent, being apathetic towards unity. Lord, would you stir us, stir up a, a healthy, hungry desire within us to come into agreement, to come in unison with you and with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to feel what you feel and love what you love and hate what you hate. Align our desires with your desires. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, as we prayed this morning, on earth as it is in heaven, in our hearts as it is in heaven, in our actions as it is in heaven. May it be beautiful and a blessing unto you that we would minister to one another as we grow in unity. Lord, place that burning desire within our hearts to be in unison with you. One, oneness, Lord, unity, oneness, unity, oneness. It's the heartbeat of the gospel. It's the heartbeat that created everything around us. You, wanted to be, you want to be one with your creation. And so we humbly submit to you, Lord, and say, have your way. Whatever unity looks like, no matter the cost, it is worth it. You said so in the blood of Jesus. And so, Lord Jesus, we say thank you for your great sacrifice. We remember you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I love you all. Bless you all. Have a great Sunday.